Welcome to another episode of the Emulsion Podcast, a show for chefs who want to think better, increase their performance, and believe that it's possible to take lessons from what others have learned. I am your host, Justin Kana, and I'd love to continue the conversation with you from this episode on my online circle community. There you can share your two cents and learn about supporting the show on justinkana.com slash support. For your convenience, it's also linked up in the description of your podcast player. Let's get into the show. My guest today is Ken McGarry, author of The Surprise Restaurant Manager and founder of Corgan Hospitality, a nationwide consulting firm dedicated to helping restaurateurs reach their absolute potential with effective leadership and maximum profitability. I have a wide range of questions for Ken. Most specifically, I'm curious to hear his thoughts on productive and adaptive hospitality strategies and how they actually get deployed in the real business sense of things. If you enjoy this interview, I absolutely recommend you queue up my conversation with John Miller. He's a old friend, also managed a ton of restaurants, and he has some really, really good insights on this topic. If at any point you'd like to pause, check out Ken online, you want to check out the book or any of the specific linkable things that we discuss, please check out the show notes, which are always available in the description or on justincana.com slash media. Thanks for being with me, Ken. It's good to see you. Justin, thank you so much. Really appreciate it. As a fun way to kind of get a sense of your background, is Mm -hmm. there a moment or whether it's at a specific restaurant or a, a, a night in service or a concept in particular where you were like, yeah, I can do this restaurant thing, like for real, for real. Yes. Um, when you ask that question, what I go to is an event in time. There was a point in my life to where I thought that I was going to be a hybrid between entertainment-based venues and F&B. So I was working at a upscale bowling slash F&B concept. Very popular. It did very well. But the... I had a woman that I was doing my kind of quasi table touch who came over to me and told me that this is the first time that she had been out since her, the loss of her son and said how much it meant to her. And she hugged me and she began crying and I began crying and it was this amazing thing. And she just said, thank you so much for what you've created for me. It, it will mean the world. And I've stayed in touch with this person for the rest of my life. And it made me realize there's a, deep level to what we do. We create environments and connections that is just so incredible. And at that point in my life, if I was never pot committed, I absolutely was from that moment forward. When was this on the timeline? Can you put this? This would be in New Orleans. So okay. I would say that that was probably nine, 10 years ago. I mean, wow. I've been in the, I've been in the hospitality industry since, you know, most of us in high school, but uh, I didn't really get into management until my mid twenties. And it was at that point to where I said, I really love creating these experiences, and it was great. Now, there is a quick side thing to that. She went on to Yelp and wrote how amazing that experience was for me and how she it made her feel and this great stuff. And Yelp unrecommended it because it thought it was, it was so nice that they thought it was a fake review. <laughs> so... <laughs> It's one of the reasons that I have a love-hate relationship with Yelp oh my because goodness. of I was like, Wah! but yes, it, that moment in time, I think back on fondly. I mean, you're not the only one that thinks that about It's so funny that that is uh, how it gets incentivized where the really bad ones are the ones that make it to the top of the page and the really yep. good ones, they'll just delete them because it's like, no, yep. there's no way this could be real. Because there's no negative thing. Totally. So if, if she wrote all of that and wrote, but parking is bad, it would have stayed there. But because it was all glowing, the algorithm just kicked it off. That's so, so funny. 
the surprise restaurant manager, mm -hmm. why write this book? Why not make it a series of articles or just go speak at culinary schools or restaurant restaurant conferences? Why make it and package it into a book? So my biggest client is Fabio Viviani from Top Chef, and I've partnered with him and opened up about 15 restaurants in the last couple of years. And I found myself having the same conversations over and over again. Things like how to hire somebody effectively, questions that you can't ask in interviews. The number of times I've been in an interview and someone says, hey, are you married? And I'm nudging somebody saying, you know, you can't ask that question. That's not a, or we terminated somebody. Well, how'd you do it? Well, we brought him out next to the dumpster and told him to go. That's not how you operate. And so all of these things that I had over and over again as conversations, I began to write down. And then I realized that the majority from front of the house managers traditionally were bartenders or servers who were just handed the keys and said, here, go do this, start locking up, and then became managers with zero training. So that's why I started writing it is to for an industry that really didn't have a lot of training and an environment that just happens to be ripe for being able to give people training when it's just not happening. So when you was it a process of distilling some of these conversations into individual chapters and that's how you formed your outline or can cuz there's a lot of folks who I think would benefit even in their individual organizations to writing down how they think about X or this is how I learned Y um, and get distributing it to their teams. But from a, from a writing perspective, like what was valuable for you in, in kind of forming that? Cause the writing piece is often difficult for a lot of hospitality folks. Yes. And I didn't go to hospitality school. I went to school for English. So if that ever served me at Bang. any point in my life, that was it. But uh, I also took Japanese. That was not the language to take. No, nope. you know, necessarily. <laughs> that was if I had to go back. I definitely would not have chosen that. But uh, when I originally started creating it, it was when I was leaving my barbecue restaurant in Canada. I had opened a barbecue restaurant. Immigration was like, you got to go back to the U.S. And I had worked with a guy to take over as a GM. So I just had to sit down and write out everything I could possibly think of and then dump it down. And that was in 2006. And that's still, there's still parts of the book that was from back then. But the book itself is a whole bunch of freestanding articles. And I encourage people that if you know how to hire people, don't read that chapter. And if you know how to not ask questions that are covered by the EEOC, then don't read that. But dig into the chapters about work-life balance or dealing with super strong personalities like owners who don't focus on operations when they're making decisions. And that part of the book is the, the beginning part of the book is usually for people who are just getting into the industry. And by the end of it, it's for all of us. There's probably a bunch of people and I would be remiss if I didn't dig into the interview questions, because I know that that either plagues a lot of people or as I, as you and I were kind of talking with the mics off, it's, it's, the audience of this podcast can often find themselves on the other side of, of the interview, not the ones asking the questions, but the ones being interviewed for a new position. And right. so when I, I, I call this the meta job interview, and then I want to get into some individual tactical things. But when you're interviewing a new restaurant manager mm -hmm. and you ask them a question, you can use examples of questions if you'd like, but what do you look for in either how they answer 
or their answer themselves that hopefully can tell you a lot about that candidate. There's a reason why they left the job or are leaving the job that they have. And why are you leaving your current job is a very fair question to ask. But the worst thing you can do is be like, oh, these people are terrible. There's rats in the kitchen. They're laundering money. It's it just like back the bus over where they are. Because the reality is they'll do that to you to get to the next place. They're not somebody who's looking for the next thing. There's somebody who's trying to escape a certain position that they're in. So when I'm interviewing, I'm looking for people that are have taken the time of the research to know what I'm offering, or at least from a culinary standpoint or from a environment standpoint, to where why is that attractive to them? To which the one number one thing that drives me most insane is if I have a restaurant and you haven't bothered to come into the restaurant before our interview, what are you doing? Are sure. you gonna actually are you actually gonna take the the position if I offer it to you, having never even walked into the restaurant or talk to anybody in there and said, hey, what's it like working here? Do your homework before you sit in an interview. And if you show me that you've done that, you'll probably get the job straight out. Well, what an underrated way to get a sense of not just the philosophy, but to be able to see, because an interview environment is, is, is in many ways very artificial, right? Like everybody's on a certain type of behavior um, that isn't exactly the same as if you were to go and just sit at the bar and have a drink and just watch the restaurant go. Um, I don't know. And I want to dig into other tips with interviewing from from either a question standpoint or a sure. um, tips and tricks and strategies thing. What should people be thinking about when they interview or are interviewing other candidates? Well, when being interviewed or are interviewing, it has everything to do with making it a conversation. And I know that that seems cliche, but the reality is you are interviewing them as much as they are you. And if you are interviewing somebody and they make a statement, you have to be able to dig into that statement. For example, you'll see on the resumes, a chef might say, I was able to lower food costs by 3%. And then your response should be, how? I mean, what did you do? Was it was it portioning it? Was it controlled? Did you adjust the cost? Did you work with different vendors? Or did you just stand outside with a sandwich board waving, come here, eat here? What was your process that got you to that? Because otherwise, it's just an arbitrary number. So people have a tendency in interviews to try to make them congenial and positive and welcoming, but they have to kind of be difficult. It's kind of my same thing with podcasts. I like podcasts that challenge me because it makes me think and come up with solutions instead of just mindlessly talking about my wonderful book. You know, that totally. sort of thing. Totally, so totally. It's that, it's that. Dig in, dig in. And well, don't be afraid to do it. Well, as people write their resumes, then maybe there's something to actually challenging yourself to think about, like, is there a story potentially behind or is there a conversation thread that if the person interviewing me were to bring this up in the interview, I feel like I can pull on that because I know, because people constantly are thinking, how do I make the four to five bullet points on my resume to talk about the experience that I had? I get this question all the time, Ken. And so anything else on that? I mean, making it a conversation is absolutely true because there's, um, you, you want to have that healthy dynamic in a restaurant and sure. everybody's different, of course, but um, anything else on, on interviewing? I think a lot of it has to do with being able to walk into the, if you are the interviewee, walking into it with an understanding that you are in 
for lack of a better term, a power position. They should be just as lucky to have you as you would be to work for them. And making that conversation be something that you are – so if you did lower your cost by 3 percent, trumpet how you're able to do that. Talk about – what developments and strengths that you bring, not just the technical aspects or the degrees that you might have, but who you are as a person and how that's going to translate to this business. But most importantly, taking an active role in the conversation. Because if all you're doing is sitting back and answering, you're completely, it's a complete one-sided conversation. I want to switch gears and this is related, talking about strong restaurant personalities. I know this mm -hmm. is something that you had wanted to kind of dig into a little bit. And this is owners, senior management, who oftentimes make kitchen ops challenging. How can yes. we do better with that type of strong restaurant personality? So I mentioned uh, Chef Fabio Viviani. He's from Top Chef as one of the first mentors, the first guys that I've connected with here in Chicago, and I still work with now to this day. Uh, a very good example is he would be the person that would walk in and look at the menu at about four o'clock and say, ah, you know what? We need a cauliflower steak on this menu. And I would be the person going, okay, well, we can go ahead and get that costed together and we'll put that, I'll get you three tastings and we'll, I'll have it to you in a week. No, 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 tonight. And it was that level of what? And the first time I realized that, I, like my, my first initial response was, well, that's impossible. What are you what are you asking? It's there's no physical way from four. I open the doors at five. It's four. How am I going to do this? But the answer becomes I am going to work with the chefs. We're going to develop it. We're going to cost it. We're going to reprint the menus. We're going to do the digital menu boards. We're going to update it on social media. We're going to push it out. We're going to taste it in pre-shift. We are going to discuss it, uh, put it in the POS system. And we're going to do that in 60 minutes. And the first time I did it, I thought I was going to run away screaming for the concept. But the 18th time I did it, I realized being nimble is there's a value in there. There's a value in being quick because if somebody believes that you can do it faster than you think you can do it yourself, you can't take that as being a negative. You have to take that as somebody who has that much faith in you of being able to do that. Now, that does not mean that these big personalities are always right. There's a very good possibility that their avarice to try to go, go, go might be pushing in a direction that might go counter with operations. We see this a lot right now where people are short staffed and they're now trying to open up more day parts. They've only been able to open up dinner and it's like, okay, next week we're going to open for lunch. Wow. We don't have the staff. How are you? How are you making this happen? So knowing when to, to push back but being able to do so in a way that is constructive with the solution is the way that you manage those strong personalities. But if you're the person that always says no, 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 every time an owner says this is what we're going to do, you're going to find yourself in the outs. So much to dig in here. I, I, I love this, this topic. What changes between the first time that that happens and I think you were semi-joking with the 18 or 18 times thing, but <laughs> between the first time and the fourth time, and then the fourth time and the ninth time, and the ninth time and the 13th time, how do you think about iteration with unexpected occurrences? Okay, we're going to do all this stuff. All, so you're laying out all of this stuff is required to go from nugget of idea to proper execution that doesn't require Correct. a bunch of cleaning up somebody's mess at the end of it. How do you iterate in that process with the team? 
So the first time that you do it, you just go, yep, we're going to make it happen. And that personality type works very well, works amazingly well in opening restaurants. That person who you have 100 things coming at you, you just go, ah, we're going to figure it out. And you become that. But you also manage data and you figure out, okay, well, because of how we did this, there was a drop in knowing when the you know the steak knife was supposed to hit the table and we didn't get that with the busser and we didn't so so the connectivity of rushing it that quick meant that we didn't have these things so the next time that we do it we need to build that in and it doesn't necessarily mean that you get back to pushing it out for a week but it gives processes to when you know those things are going to come through that there is a process of oh we're introducing this new menu item well now that this funnels to this person who handles these five tasks and it follows this person to these five tasks. So it's not just one person running around with their head cut off screaming, Oh my God, we have to add this to the menu. It's all right. I'm going to connect it with the chef and he's going to work with his team. I'm going to connect it with admin. And they're going to push it out on social media. I'm going to connect it with the front of the house and they're going to train it with their staff. I'm going to do what it takes to empower the people around me to know that this is something that we do so that we can be ahead of the curve. There's another point that you brought up in the in the previous little piece there about saying no and being able to push back. I think that they're, they're sometimes of the same species, but I think that there's a sense of operationalizing it is actually kind of your job. Yes. When you're, you know, uh, either a line cook or a captain of, of, of front of house or you're doing like... The ideas sometimes come from the top, and it's actually part of... And I, I feel like people get tripped up with the idea and the execution and the strategy and the prep list and the, you know, the way that I lay out my station should all come from the top. And it's actually empowering when you flip it the other way and you say, oh, that's actually part of what I'm supposed to do is to figure out how to make this work in my workflow. Um I, I don't know any anything else. Any other insights on that piece that that you've seen work really well, or tips for people? Well, I think that the ability to say no with a solution on the other side solution is important. One hundred percent. And I know that that's just that's just what you do in life. Is that anytime that you live in no without a a counter idea, then all you are is a naysayer that's not going to facilitate any sort of positivity. But in the restaurant environment, there are so many times that you have to say no. You're, you have to say no to your staff. You have to say no to the to the guest. You absolutely, and it's okay if you're doing it because there's a logical reason behind doing so that supports not only the brand but the people. There are times all the way through that saying no actually is a super supportive thing for you to do for your business. You mentioned data. Mm-hmm. Can you ch- share a little bit about communicating with data versus communicating with emotion sure i uh, thank you thank you for asking me this because it's my favorite thing to talk about yeah yeah Uh, i one of my absolute pet peeves in dealing with anybody in any kitchen environment is they work from emotion it doesn't matter oh i think i think larry over there on saute is lazy oh i i feel that becky on the floor she doesn't have the energy that she used to well, these I think and I feel statements are great for marriage counseling, but they suck for actually managing people. Because what are you going to do? Walk over to Larry and be like, hey, Larry, I feel that you could do better. Or Becky, I, I think that your energy could be. No, that, that doesn't give tangible solutions for anything. Because 
part of being able to truly manage, whether front of the house or back of the house, is putting the correct people in the places that they need to be. So from a front of the house example, you'll have somebody who can handle a four-table section. And then you have another person that can only handle a two-table section. Well, it's not smart from you from a business standpoint to put the, the that two-table section person in the four-table section just because you want to be fair. And you have to be able to put those people in the right places. But you also have to have conversations with them and say, hey, Becky, you're a four-table section person. And Todd, you're a two-table section person. But Todd, here are the three things that you can do to become a four-table section person. So that might be turn times or tip averages or, or, or check averages tip reducing reduces. trips to and from you know saving steps literally Ex saving steps exactly mm -hmm. all the things that they that you can do and even more so in the back of the house where it's a measurable how long is it taking for you to execute the items what does your kitchen station look like what are the what are the measurable things so instead of saying to somebody hey larry you know uh, i really feel like you're doing a bad job you talk to Larry about the three deficits and how he can improve based on data. But too many of us just live in emotion, and that's not the way to manage anybody. Well, how much does doing that then actually positively affect that person's emotion, which then leads them to be more motivated, which then makes it more likely that they'll follow the path to get to A to B? I, I, I really, really love that. Is there any other... like? having those conversations being able to have that come from the manager or is there some sort of nuance where you find that it's more effective to kind of have that be an intrinsic thing for that person i think that it has to initially come from whoever is managing that state so if it's the kitchen manager noticing somebody if it is the if it is the front of the house manager whoever is in charge of being able to do that but truly using it in coaching. And I think that we've lost the through line on what coaching is. As a coach of a team, you're on their team. So you're literally trying to get people to do something because you're all working together on a common goal. You know, Sean Payton on the Saints doesn't work necessarily against Drew Brees. Former Drew Brees, I feel bad he's gone. But you get my point? He's doing so to work as a team, and that's when you're coaching your team. That's that's a reality. When it, when the, your chef is calling out to everybody on the line, he's doing so as a team instead of being, you know, adversarial. It doesn't get adversarial, for lack of a better term, until you get to documentation stage. And then that's the time that you have to go through the things like bringing a, bringing a witness and making sure that that witness is a supportive witness and also making sure that, that that mechanism of how you're communicating is documented because you realize that all your coaching is falling on deaf ears. So I think it goes back to whoever's immediately involved in that person's support and can also say at the end of it, oh, I've noticed you've done those three things congratulations, here's your four-table section. Or, hey, Larry, nice work on the uh, your station. Now you're a trainer for Saute. That. I'd be curious to get your... I was thinking about this as we start to see the rise in popularity of external, kind of like third-party HR organizations coming into restaurants to cover all things HR. Be that witness, be that person in the interview that accompanies the manager that's interviewing. Um keeping track of records, doing a lot of the payroll stuff and documentation. Because a, a lot of concepts start off with kind of like what I'll call the minimum effective team, 
It's like basically what they need to open the doors, especially if it's right. a small first time concept. And then as the business grows and as you start to formalize things and the initial staff leaves and you actually start to hire, it's not just the initial base of homies that came to help you open the place. You right. start to need these things in HR. Not saying that the book is a substitution for either an HR person or an HR you know, uh, piece of training, but do you think that that holds weight or there is a better world where every single restaurant should have HR representation on staff 24-7 and not have it be, oh, well, the, you know, the wine director also is our HR person kind of thing. Yeah, that's that's a challenge where the HR director and the wine person is the same, particularly the wine person. But that's a, so, <laughs> yeah, um, it's true. Yeah. So it, it, it absolutely is true. Uh, I have a huge value. I mean, for for Fabio's concepts, we have a third party HR company that we use out of L.A. And they are when it comes beyond day to day or somebody feels that they want to have a conversation outside of the four walls that they feel supportive, that they do so with that HR person. As part of our culture, there is an access to everybody, including Fabio, including me, including this third party that can assess. And I think that that's very important. However, having a person there for HR would be a nice to have, but for especially for places that are first opening, it, you, you probably might don't have the financial ability to have that. And if you have managers, both front of the house, back of the house, that follow certain parameters, not having uh, disciplined conversations and locked doors and you know basements where one-on-one -on -one where there's no one around uh, not using aggressive language not documenting in a proper manner all of those things then you can usually avoid a lot of the pitfalls that people fall into there's a chapter that i wrote called how to avoid hr and it's literally based on one thing that we all fall into which i call overestimated familiarity it's when you feel that you can be more like jocular and uh casual with somebody then then they feel comfortable like you and i have just now started to get to know each other if you decided that now that you were going to be like hey and stop calling me ken and start calling me baldy because <laughs> i have no hair um I might laugh that off and be like, ha, oh, that's great. But inside I might be like, that that sucks. I really hate that. Sure. And but you're you're in a position of authority in this scenario. So I don't feel comfortable in saying, hey, Justin, that's not fair. Don't do that. So when it's a boss and staff member standpoint, so much gets wrapped up in nicknames and casual conversations and ways of communicating to where suddenly people feel like, oh. Well, that's unfair. That person's treating me in this way and that person in a different way. Now, that's all fine and good in a world that if we were all architects, but we all work in restaurants and everybody has a nickname in restaurants and everybody <laughs> drops F-bombs and gives people a hard time in restaurants. That's just what, it's why we work in restaurants. It's So I, I talk about reading your audience. It's a comedy thing to where you can understand is your uh, – are you good with everybody here? Because something you're saying, one person could very well affect somebody else. So let's make sure we're all on the same page that this is what we're going to do. And the minute that it's not okay, don't take that as an opportunity to hammer that person down. Pivot and go to something else. And if you're able to have those two concepts in mind, it you can have HR, but you probably don't need them on a daily basis. There might also be something there with 
um, changing how your sense of humor gets conveyed. I think a lot of us might have a friend that comes to mind where whenever they're telling a joke, they have to curse in that joke. It's like yes. there's something in them where the cursing makes it funnier in their mind. And you know that, like, I'm sure that there's um, a way that you could probably be funny without the curse words in that sense. And so maybe there's something there of just reevaluating how you convey your sense of humor. Because I enjoy ragging on my teammates, too, sometimes. I think it's like that that can actually be uh, a really healthy dynamic when you're not doing it in a way that could ultimately be harmful. So maybe there's something there, too. So how do you pivot from when it's the level of, hey, I, I'm giving you a hard time to where now I'm going to put back on the boss hat and I'm going to have to admonish you for something that's going wrong? What, how do you deal with that? Hmm. I want to talk about dealing with staff and guest negativity. And okay. I was going to position this from the sense of being in a really negative environment can often lead to burnout for a lot of folks. Sure. And you write about avoiding burnout. Is there anything that people can keep in mind if they find themselves in a negative environment right now or they've had a you know, pretty rough string of negative guest interactions and they're wow. really feeling down? How can we kind of pull ourselves out of that? Well, I mean, yes, there are definitely a lot of negative reactions. People coming out with what I call 2019 expectations to where they're expecting their their level of you know, the, the amount of time it takes to get a drink or food or whatever or the amount of staff to be like it used to be. But, you know, I'm often reminded that it wasn't even easy in 2019 to fight staff. So it's not like, you know, yes, it's harder now, but it's always been kind of hard. And that being said, the challenge with negativity is that people internalize this personally and from it, and I can only speak from a front of the house manager standpoint on this one, but you have people who take it personally that some your steak was overcooked, and they, their response. I mean, is typically when they come from an elevated response, you have to understand that negativity. And there's a difference between, hey, you know, I want to check and see how our steak was, and if it was prepared to your liking, and they're like, you know, what, it's a little, a little overdone. Then, oh, thank you so much for letting me know. That's not negativity. That's feedback, and that's appreciated, and that's fine. I'm talking about the person who's like, I'm not going to pay for this, and I hate this, and I wouldn't feed this to my dog. That person. And you get those people several times a night. And because of that, it's very easy to start getting defensive because you're wanting to defend the brand or disconnected to where you're like, yeah, I don't care. Whatever. She's going to complain. I don't care about her. But if you only way that you'll ever survive negativity is to understand why people are negative. You have to kind of take a couple steps back. Someone's screaming about their steak. They're screaming about it because of maybe their sticker shock. They didn't realize that the you know, 28 day ribeye is going to be $85. Uh, maybe it's an important date. Maybe there's a there's a reason behind it that this was so important. But more importantly, they've gotten to a headspace to where they feel like that they were probably targeted. It's like they had that stake. Purposely, it's them. And they, they feel completely out of control. And they're, the more people are elevated, the more they're showing that they're completely out of control. And when you see that, 
your only response when you take that second second step back is compassion and kind of pity because if somebody is that angry and that elevated about their dining experience it probably means that they're really insecure and and i feel bad for them so my response is it's okay we're gonna it's gonna be fine we're gonna get you fed don't you worry about what yeah forget this steak throw this steak away let's try this again we're fine because that's genuine and it's also treating them kind of like they're five which is it's okay you're gonna be fine because if they're that angry the worst thing you could do is suck in that and try to meet it with equal aggression that's how you see people burn out you're preaching because i teach this to chefs as well uh, from the sense of not taking things personally i think it's super underrated from the sense of you know chefs chef passes back the four plates that you just plated up and they say plate it again you know what i mean that's yep. not an attack on you ken the person it is just it needs to be done in a different way and th there was another piece that um i was reading the other day anger is not an emotion from the sense of like people get angry you get angry because you're feeling, like you're saying, insecure. You get angry because you're feeling like you have some mismanaged expectations or sticker shock or sad at something that your boss said to you, and then you're bringing that into the dinner that you then leash, unleash on the, on the restaurant staff. Correct. Um, there's always something underlying the anger, which I think is, is really, really an, an, an interesting concept for people to think about. It is challenging. You, you mentioned uh, plates coming back to Expo. That's a huge talk about the chefs that I work well with. It's the ones that not only do they want to see every plate that comes back, they will get upset if it goes straight to dish without them seeing it because they want to understand the expectation of the guests as much. It could be a perfectly prepared steak, but they they want to understand why this person had that takeaway from it and they don't internalize it and become angry or aggressive. But I mean, old school, it was don't even bother chef and just just throw it in a dish and don't worry but we've elevated and i think that that's a good a good thing that's happening in our industry is that we have chefs who are more talented and less ego driven well talk about a potential like nasim taleb talks about anti anti-fragility where a system gets better when it's under stress and i think that there's something to bring it back to one of the first points that you were talking about when chef comes in and says we want the cauliflower steak they actually know it's possible because they've iterated on guest feedback so many times and they can look at the menu and say, this actually needs a cauliflower steak because I have so much, like that's how you build up your experience and shielding yourself from that or shielding your team from that can actually be really negative because you don't actually have the opportunity to process that feedback. Exactly. Anytime that you get yourself into the point to where you're tiptoeing or you're slowing the process because of the possibility of other persons having a bad, oh, they might not be bought in. You're never going to know because to that example, the first time Fabio did it, my response was no possible <laughs> way, zero. And I've been in the industry for 20 years. So I was like, no, you're insane. Sure. But thank, thank God I didn't do that because I wouldn't be where I was today because he'd be like, oh, that's a no guy. That's all he does. He just tells you why it's not going to work and doesn't give you any solutions that are better. Fair. Really fair. You talk about, I think in the, in, more in the context of um, front of house interacting with guests, uh, table touch. How can chefs as 
counter concepts are becoming more popular and open kitchens and uh, you know the the restaurant where I became like executive sous chef at I would go out into the dining room frequently especially to regulars and critics and stuff like that because it was just an extra touch and I had to learn how to leave the kitchen because a lot of chefs I think retreat to the kitchen as kind of a reprieve from being sure. extroverted so you can talk a little bit about front of house tips but I, I'd actually be more curious in how chefs can learn table touch and get better at it I love a chef table touch. I believe it goes in the hierarchy. It's server, front of the house manager, GM, possibly the owner, and then chef. If I can get a chef at your table, I'm good. Because you, your level of discourse and communication changes. People feel that they can tee off and have that negative aggression with a uh, server or a manager or even a GM. But by the time you get to a chef, that's the person who's coming over and visibly, chef coat there, taking responsibility. And anytime, whether the person's right or not about the overcooked steak, it's literally that responsibility of saying, hey, I'm here and I, and your opinion matters to me. And the number of times that I have seen people that have stayed elevated with a, with a chef at the table is about zero. So that's whenever i can go to and i will and i'll walk to chefs i'll be like chef can you please do me a favor go to table 43 with me and he'll be like yeah kid i got you and then we go down and you could see the difference so understanding of that as a chef use it as the opportunity to say that all this is is that they have an opinion and they want you to collect data so it's not a falling on the sword for michelle i'm so sorry and we're terrible and you're great it's you know we, you obviously have an expectation, and we missed the mark, and I would really love your feedback so that we can take this to improve. We we take this seriously, and I really want to hear from you. And in doing that and then letting them talk and truly having a conversation with them for a minute is going to make them feel heard. Because that's the whole reason why people leave negative reviews anyway is that they didn't think anybody cared about them in the restaurant. If a chef is at your table... The middleman's gone. There's no middleman. I mean, ever. There's, there's yep. no, there's legit. The person who, and it, yeah. So, in a perfect world, chef would talk to every table, but I need chef, you know, being a chef. But uh, just understanding that their rationale of it, a GM goes to the table, or a, man, a front house manager goes to the table, trying to figure out how can I minimize this, how can I fix this, how can I move maneuver them past this, so they'll come back for another experience. Chef is hey, let's just talk about it. I just want to hear what you're thinking. And I think that, that the value of that is amazing. One thing that really helped me as I was trying to get more comfortable with table touch in this context, I think, is asking for feedback even when it's not negative. Like going to present the next dish. I know that I don't technically need to, but I'm going to go to table 13 and I'm going to give them their next course. And really kind of building up that muscle was really helpful for me because if the only time that you interact with guests in the dining room happens to be in negative situations where you're trying to diffuse something or you're trying to, you know, like you said, um, respond to feedback in the moment, it can often cause this really negative kind of like Pavlovian relationship with like, hey, chef, we needed to come out into the dining room. You're like, ah, oh, fuck. <laughs> you know, right. yeah. it's like Every, everyone sees him come out. They're like, oh, oh damn. no, here we go. Something's but if it becomes here. this regular thing where you're always kind of like wanting to check in on people and you're just kind of like taking, you know, a couple minutes between turns and talking to tables as they're kind of getting towards the end of their meal, 
I think that can be really valuable for folks. I do that too. And I mean, and not just be, I mean, Fabio is a, is a celebrity chef. So people want to see Fabio at their table. But when I work with chefs that are not on TV, just your know, straightforward, super awesome chefs, I often, whenever I have that table that I can see that they're clicked on, the lights on, we've got them, they love it. I, I do the same thing. I'm like, chef, could you come over to table 43 and let's, you know, they're having a great experience because all they're doing is talk about how great it is. And that I love. I just did this recently in one of our concepts in Memphis and it wasn't a standard. I just happened to have been there at the time and I, they were just raving about it. And I pulled chef over and he was the exec zoo and he was running the, the floor for brunch. And I said to him, Hey, you know, table 15 really loves it. Could you mind? And he was like, and then he went out for like, five minutes and they told him how great he was and they went back to the kitchen the hot ass kitchen with 200 plates going and it was better for him because he was like oh shit because that's the one thing chefs never get to really do and especially everybody in the line never gets to see what i see i am i am is beneficial for me and I am in a very advantageous situation because I get to walk around and 95% of the time be told how great I am and how great this restaurant is, how great the food is. That's that's the majority of what I do. I talk to people and they say how amazing it is. And they don't have that. Your person in the line doesn't have the ability to walk around and go, oh, damn, people really love it. And I kind of wish they did because it would really give them that feeling of, yeah, all right, this is worth it. Look at all these happy, smiley people. So anytime I can get somebody back in the house to come in the front, I'm loving. Are we in a, uh, Are you and I in agreement that there there should um, not be such a harsh line between front of house and back house? Am I am I accurate in kind of saying that? I mean, I've spent my entire life trying to figure out how to break cool. that down. I, I wasn't going to lead into this question if you thought <laughs> if you thought the other way or if there was a oh, different no, underlying no, no. philosophy. Okay, cool. It's a chasm. There's no doubt. Cool, yeah. cool. And, and, and I, I lead with that because I think that there's elements of, you know, you, br you bring the, the, the finished fish dish from table 23 back into the kitchen and even just a quick, like, Shout out to the line cook of saying what the, like, so you're the server, you got feedback, conveying that to the person who prepared the dish goes an incredibly long way. That's how, that's how front of house can kind of extend, extend an olive branch uh, to the kitchen in, in a way. And then I think on the other, the other side of things, we had a lot of success in having maybe once a quarter, twice a year, having individual front of house folks come and spend a day or a half day in the kitchen and just that. cooking with the line cook team uh, because it gives them a better sense of how does the kitchen operate? How do sauces get made? How does you take it from a case of uh, cauliflower or fennel into a puree for the chicken main course? And they both go such a really long way. Does anything else kind of stand out as kind of um, individual tactical practices that people can start next week in their restaurant jobs to, to, meld that i don't know if melding it is sound, the right it sounds it sounds super basic but it but it's day one of training whenever we open a new restaurant is all we have everybody in here and we all like do the hello and we do the icebreaker front of the house back of the house well, everyone says their name and all this other stuff and then i will hold up the wine list and then uh, i'll hold up everybody in the room and i'll say okay by the end of the week which is it more important for you to know every wine on the white list or every single person in this room 
because nothing drives me more insane that if you have to go back to the middle of the service and ask for more dish or more forks from dish and you don't know his name or her name, uh, you shouldn't be in the restaurant. The, the fact that the line for front of the house is this just nameless bunch of people that they have no interaction with and they don't even bother to know their name is annoying and horrible. And just something as simple as that, being able to know and have a connection with all of those for, for both, from both sides is really, really a, a start. It's a very basic beginning. But anything that you can continue to do from that, I'm a big believer in team building. I'm a big believer in bringing everyone into pre-shifts. I'm a big believer in having communications where everybody is associated. But just starting by knowing who is who's that prep person who's making your pasta at 5 a.m. every morning, you know that person. The it's, last chef that I worked for would sit uh, come come into the private dining room because we would often eat staff meal in the private dining room and he would sometimes see the thing that you see at um you know like just cocktail parties where all the men go to talk to each other and all the women go and talk to each other and it would happen with front of house back of house so it would be all the front of house people on one side of the table all the back house you know the kitchen team on the other side and he'd be like everybody play musical chairs everybody get up and move chairs and intersperse yourselves amongst each other because it's like Sometimes, especially if it's like there's a lot of new hires that came on, or sometimes it can be the reverse. It's like there's people have been on the team for so long that there's just kind of like the gravity of things have just over time kind of pulled things into separate directions and people don't feel comfortable with that. And so forcing that, you know, in, 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 in as kind of a way as you can, can often lead to really positive team dynamics. I think the word that you hit on there was comfortable. Mm. And anytime that you can break comfort and to get people outside of themselves, you do it because you'll end up with a better result. Last question before we get into some, some rapid fire ones, All you right. talk about restaurant professional success mm-hmm. and you know, individual restaurant successes can often be defined with revenue numbers or number of locations or how many guests you go through in a weekend. How should individual restaurant professionals think about either evaluating their success. I know previously in the conversation you talked about, well, I'm a two-table server going to a four-table server. Is it little stuff like that? Or how can people be thinking about really being, and I hope that this solves a a problem with folks and feeling that um, inadequacy, feeling unappreciated, feeling like they're stuck. How can people reframe this? There's only one metric to me that really matters. It's turnover. Because Making millions for millionaires is nice. And you know, making great food for people is fantastic. But creating an environment to where people honestly are not only excited about being there, but are literally unpoachable. Because that's a huge thing right now. People are walking in, walking into the kitchen saying, I'll pay you $4 more an hour to come work for me. I'll you know, trying to pull, they come into restaurants, trying to pull staff as fast as they can and restaurant tours are getting just agitated i hate these people down the street they're all they're trying to take my whole staff and i'm like you're focusing on the wrong thing you're missing the bigger point your job is not to try to protect what you have your job is to create an environment to where they're completely unpoachable to where fine come on in whoever you want try try all you want you're never going to get them because they they're happy about where they are and whether that has to do with the level of respect 
the level of empowerment that they have, the lack of micromanagement, their compensation level, the fact that they get their schedules before Saturday when their next shift is on Monday, you know, that they can plan it a week and out in advance. You do all the things because you care about that person's quality of life. They become unpoachable and then they don't leave. And that to me is the absolute measure of success is a restaurant that you can go there and in a year, 90% of those people are there because they love it and they don't want to go anywhere else. And that's, that's where you go back to building environments to where people become friends for life. And that's where people meet people and they marry people from those places. And they've been those, they'll, they'll know those friends for 50 years. And if I get to be a part of that, then that's why I do exactly what I do. We talk about it in my event production company of holding our employees with an open hand. It's not the sense of like we're there's a there's this pressing force on you that you have to stay here. It's kind of like nope, you're here. You want to go, you go. And we've actually gone the opposite where we will help someone into their next position because we just like there's zero reason for there to feel like there's that kind of negative dynamic that you touched on Abs a little bit. And ab absolutely, if your your whole job in life in life is somebody's if you're having any interaction with somebody their life should be better after having met you and that's just who we are as people so i've done that as well if somebody if it's not a good fit i'll be like hey i'm going to call the restaurant guy down the street and see if that they need you that might be a better fit for you yes just just making sure that you're that you're the better person in their life than the people that they've had because unfortunately there are a lot of people in our industry that are not not like the you what we are and maybe to touch on a previous point about taking things personally, mm -hmm. it's not always coming from a place of, it's, it sometimes comes from insecurity, like feeling that you have to be overbearing and make people feel guilty about wanting more stuff. It's, it's, it's comes often from a negative place. And so when you feel prepared, you have some confidence, you feel like you're organized, all this stuff, it can often mitigate that feeling of kind of like, oh, well, we need to pressure people into, oh, yeah. into showing up next week because whatever. Hey, people, people make a conscious choice every day to come to work, and especially in our industry. Because if you're a good chef, a good server, a good manager, you can work anywhere, legitimately anywhere. And But you make a conscious choice every morning. My wife makes a conscious choice every morning to decide to stay married to me. Right. She can, de she can decide today, yeah, this is not the day I'm going to deal with Kitty. I'm done. But she does every morning. So every day I, I greet her like I won the lottery, I'm thankful that she's in my life, and that's great. And I think that that's why I'm still married. And the teams that I work with, I'm legitimately thankful. Thank you so much for coming in. I really, really appreciate it because I know everybody else in the world would have taken you, but you're coming to work with me and I love you for it. This first rapid fire question I'm asking at the top because I have a feeling with someone like you, it might not be a rapid fire answer and that's completely okay. No, no, no. But, I, 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 can talk, but, I can talk quick. I promise. It's okay. I, I, it's an ability. I really think that this, this uh, individual question, especially with someone like you who's thought so much about operations and clearly some psychology has come into play here and the just your industry experience in general. The question is, what do you think chefs can be doing better to help the next generation? I believe everyone needs mentors, and I believe everybody needs someone to take them by the hand and see something in them that they don't see in themselves. And 
whatever position that you step into for chefs, uh, you should be training your replacement immediately because you'll never move up to an, another position. You'll never grow if you keep on holding on to your information. Share everything. Share absolutely everything you do with everyone around you, and it'll empower them and it'll elevate you. Can you share a little bit about? Because I, I love that answer. I feel like what gets missed for folks sometimes is the being how? mentorable. Like being a good mentee often doesn't like find finding a mentor and being a mentor. That's pretty straightforward. I think being able sure. to pass along what you know and kind of like, okay, well, I don't know how to do X, Y, Z, so I need to seek out someone who does know. That's par for the course. We're mimetic creatures. That's so it's understandable. Being someone who is coachable, who knows how to ask questions, who knows how to respond to feedback, that's a skill development thing. So can you, I don't know, what, what have you learned in, in regards to that? I think that it's important that you're, when you're choosing the person that is going to, who your replacement is, that you are focusing on, do they have the skill set? Do they have the personality? Do they have the work ethic? Because those are all the things that you just can't tr train. They, they are who that person is. But then anybody who says, I want to do what you do, I'm always like, great. And then I give them an insane, a large amount of things to learn. I'm like, okay, well, here's a performer. And I'm going to talk to you about how you're going to develop that. And then here is how we do a costing model. We're going to talk about how we're going to cross utilize these 12 ingredients across this. And this is how we balance three vendors and all of these different things that we put in. And then I'll give them something really big as a task and say, I want your opinion on this. And then I'll give them a timeline. And if they come back and say, well, you know what? I think we could save 8% on produce by being able to use these two people instead of this one purveyor because they've cross-utilized and figured out that then I'm like, all right, now you're thinking like a chef. I like this. I know that you've done the homework. If someone comes back and goes, I didn't have a chance to do it. Well, that's not your next, that's not the person to mentor. So I think it's very important that you're, you're cognizant. Does that person have that skill set? And then challenge them almost immediately with something that they probably wouldn't otherwise be exposed to and see how they respond. Because I think that they're, turning it into a verb instead of keeping it a noun I think is so impactful. Because a lot of people who start off thinking, oh, well, I'll find a mentor and it'll just be like I hop on the train and I just ride their coattails until I get successful. And it's like, no. That's that's not it at all. So that's a, that's a really good answer. I really like. And that. I think and I think a mentor, by and large, you can't expect that somebody is going to take that much of a. Oh, I'm going to focus on that person and I'm going to stay on top of them. If you have a mentor, it's your job to keep them on track and keep you at front of mind and fill their inbox and always showing up on your day off and saying I want to learn and I want to do and being that person. There's Ch the challenge your mentor. Yeah, I mean, mm. there's the, the Miyagi syndrome from Karate Kid to where somebody sees your value and they're going to push you. And no, they'll push you to see if you're there, and then it's up to you to continue to stay engaged. What's one thing that you've changed your mind on in recent memory? Uh, the thing I'm really struggling with right now, so I can't say I've changed my mind completely, is uh, software that replaces the uh, experience from a server at the table and what that looks like to stay within hospitality. So 
I mean, it, it's always been a part of it at the end where you can walk over and give somebody your tablet and be like, here, go ahead, thank you so much, and then they can fill out all the stuff. But I'm talking about places and not just quick casual places that are turning servers into people that are running food. And your runners and busters are now being cross-utilized for the kitchen. And now it's your same way you would order something on your phone. You're doing it just like that, and your response is the service comes as it's being delivered and all I haven't come there yet, but I'm seeing places that are doing it and I'm seeing the value, especially during a labor crunch, that that might be worth it. That and KDSs. I still hate KDSs in kitchens. <laughs> I always have. I like tickets. Yeah. I like I like a printed ticket, sure, but sure. I realize that makes me a dinosaur. Yeah. So I've I've kind of come around on KDSs. Oh, that's so there so you hard. go. Well, it's I mean, so... talk. I mean, this is like um, technology being integrated is something that's you know, in the grand scheme of things, incredibly new. As mm. you know, uh, I don't know if you followed the um, the Mr. Beast opening a bunch of like burger joints. The YouTuber just like how uh, oh. how in the world he did that was not possible. I don't think ten years ago. It, but the Mr. Beast and I first off. I am a 50-year-old man who watches Mr. Beast, and I've subscribed, hoping that somehow he'll pick me to get a Lambo. Yeah. Uh, I, and I ordered it several times, and the crazy thing is is that my wife tagged him on it, and then he followed her back. Wow. So he's like, oh. So, yeah. Well that, done. That is a brilliant marketing strategy of putting a huge name behind something who is philanthropic, and then using what is Boca de Pepe's and all these mm -hmm. other like closed concepts nationwide to be able to kick it out. And the virtual kitchen aspect and concept is very solid, especially when you can bring these amazing chefs to markets that otherwise don't have access to it. It's just having to do with, do you have the marketing behind it or it's just going to be lost on the DoorDash model? You know, it's one of 50. Mr. Beast didn't have that problem because he has 50 million subscribers. Right. So when he pushes it out, it rolls out and good on him, you know. I frame this question from, I say Saturday morning. For hospitality folks, Saturday isn't always their first day off. Sometimes it's your Monday. How do you make your eggs for yourself? <laughs> That's a great question. Um, <laughs> See, this is this is why I'm not a chef. I make him scramble. I make him scrambled. That's now, just uh, that's classic. I, Call I, it classic. I, or I order him sunny side up. If okay. I'm out, okay. I'm sunny side up. That's how I order. So him. But I can't make a sunny side. I can't. I mean, again, front of the house. Like yep. I don't even put. I just crack three eggs in, and then I just mix it up. It, there's no. There's no. There's no milk. There's no cheese. There's no. It's just that. And. The only thing that I'm ever good at is I can crack an egg with one hand. Boom. And I and I taught myself that many years ago, and I figured that's my one good thing is I can crack it with one hand. But otherwise, scrambled, embarrassingly stuff. You mentioned the bourbon. There is some guitar music in your life. The yes. question is, what's something that doesn't end up on your Instagram, as in you don't share it widely, but you get really excited about it or you love it? behind whether it's behind closed doors or with some other friends that you geek out about it with uh brisket weirdly enough i'm obsessive about brisket and i got in trouble for admitting this on another podcast but i'll do it again my mom used to make brisket as a kid okay. and and she's put it in a crock pot 
Okay. Ooh. Yeah, yeah, Ooh. that the brisket doesn't go in a crock pot. <laughs> then, then I started getting into barbecue and understanding what 18-hour low and slow, eating it straight from with a fat cap. I'm obsessive about brisket. And anywhere I go, I have to go, like, order brisket. So I don't put it on all the time on my social media, can eating brisket, but I 100% if it's available will always order it fatty and see and see who has the best have you have you hit a place yet where you're like okay this is top contender this is yeah i mean so snows in lexington texas is ridiculous um i mean all of the best stuff for me comes out of texas because there's no sauce and it's all just big fatty but i know it's cliche but Franklin's Barbecue, my God. I waited at 9 a.m. because somebody said, you got to go at 9 a.m. I stood there for three hours, and I was like, there's no way it's going to be this good for three hours. I'll be damned. It's that good. It's that good. It's just, it's just good, solid, solid barbecue. So, But anything in the Austin area of Texas, barbecue, I'll just eat brisket all day. That's just my favorite thing in the world. You can either frame this in the context of you thinking about how you developed as a writer you can Mm -hmm. do this you know 18 years ago when you were two years into your hospitality career is there a book that's been particularly impactful for you i the the most obvious is saying the table danny meyer it's just absolutely and i had the big fortune years ago when I was working with an entertainment-based concept to the CEO came and said, we're going to work on our hospitality. Who would you like to work with? And I said, Danny Meyer. And I got to go to New York and work with Hospitality Quotient and work with their company to build hospitality. So I have a special love for who he is and, and how he inspires. So that was probably the framework many years ago that started it. Uh, the book, the most recent book that I've listens to because i didn't even read it it was an audiobook um it was the subtle art of not giving a fuck because it's, i think there's something very valuable about choosing what you're very focused on and what you care about and why it matters to care a lot about some things and care nothing at all about others because otherwise it dilutes who you are i think it's genius i enjoy that his YouTube channel is great, too. I don't know if anybody uh, already follows him or not, but if any of the stuff that Ken and I have been talking about in regards to responding to negativity, not taking things personally, of course, read his book. But, his, you know, if, you aren't, if you're more a video person, his YouTube channel is great because he'll talk about five ways to not take things personally on the channel. I don't know if you are familiar with Mark's YouTube channel, Mark Manson, M-A-N-S-O-N, for anybody that wants to look that up. Um, well... I would be missed if I didn't ask about some of your biggest takeaways in working at that hospitality organization, Danny Myers. Because uh, you said them? that was really yeah. impactful. Yeah, you said that was really impactful for you. Do you have any key takeaways of that experience? The thing that always stuck with me is that they talked about the jazz level. They talked about that point where somebody's hired and they're like, oh, I'm so excited to be here. And then then just there's that key point to where it begins to tip. And you, as a chef, as a manager, as whomever, your job is to watch when that jazz level trips and then address it and keep it going and keep it elevated. And it's such a simple sort of thought, but it's stuck in my head of, yep, that's exactly what we have to do. And you have to see, because so many times it's, we hired this person, we thought they were going to be great three weeks later, they're, they're terrible. Well, 
whose fault is that? Is that your fault? Were you wrong three weeks ago or are you wrong now? But guess what? You're wrong. And that that aspect of taking ownership, I always loved. And I just carry that with me every day. You somehow get a call right after this interview that you've just won an all-expenses-paid trip to eat at your dream restaurant. And when you get there, there's someone you've always wanted to have dinner with waiting to sit at your table with you. What is that restaurant, and who is that person? Mm. Um, okay. Um, it's, if it's... My, my answer is lame because it's... I would go back to a place that I loved... And I don't think it could ever be recreated. And I would go back. I would I'd probably bring my, my friend Giff from, from college because I haven't seen him. He lives in, he's an architect in Poland and I just missed the hell out of him. Um, it's Schwa in Chicago. And I went years ago where it was one of those things to where you couldn't get reservations or sometimes they'd say you could and then you just show up it's close and there's only 18 tables and the tasting cook four hours and it's all chefs there's no cooks there's nothing and you bring a bottle of jameson and you do shots with them and they play system of a down and ice cube on deafening levels and you eat the best food you've ever had in your entire life and if you were not in the industry you'd hate every moment of it because you'd be like why are we listening to this music i think that guy's drunk why is this taking four hours but being in the industry having only chefs i loved the hell out of it and i loved it so much i don't think that i could ever go back and see it again it's like seeing the cubs in the world series it was the most amazing thing in the whole world they're only going to do that after 100 years once so i love seeing the cubs but man Nothing like that. So I, if I could do, if I could go back, it would be schwa my first time around. Do you think GIF would enjoy that experience? GIF would love it because he's super into Ice Cube, and he loves anything that's the molecular gastronomy. So yes, absolutely. I mean, what a what a con. I mean, at the time, I, I think there has been a, a little bit more of a popularization of chef counters, whether you call it Blanco or chef's table at brooklyn fair or whatever like the more grungy kind of like it's kind of hard to get into here this is kind of more for people who know a little bit more about food we're going to be experimental but man at the time that was like the anti-restaurant group kind of concept so interesting and that's that to me is the biggest thing about our industry is i carry the word industry with pride I actually, in the very back of the book, I have rules for industry because people go out and act like jackasses because they think that they're industry because they work in a restaurant. No, you're not. You have to earn that title. But once you're actually in, it's nice to be around like-minded folk. So, yeah, that, that to me was like-minded folk. Ken, this has been awesome. Is there Just any... you as well. <laughs> has, has there been a topic that we you wanted to talk through that we didn't cover? or Are there any kind of closing thoughts that you want to leave folks with? The only closing thought that I want to leave everyone with is just uh, the book is available for 99 cents on download. And I did that simply because it's not about being profited. It's, it's not a profit center for me. Yes, I make money on the book or the audio book if you're an audio book person, but uh, download it for 99 cents. I'll, if you email me at Ken at Corrigan Hospitality, I'll send you a uh, PDF for free. I just think it's more important to get the information out than it is to focus on profit. Right now, we just need people who know what they're doing, and if I can help in any way, I'm happy to be a part of the conversation. Do you think you have another book in you after writing this one? Yes, 
Yes, I do. I just don't know if I have the time to do it. <laughs> so we'll, we'll we'll see. My 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 family's from the Midwest, so we'll have to connect next time I'm I'm in Chicago. Uh, I would love I'd, that. I'd love to meet in person. Cool, cool. That'd be amazing. Thanks cool. again for coming on the show. Thanks, Justin. What's up? Justin here again, because, I mean, if you're still listening, you didn't not like this episode, right? And if that's the case, I'd like to think that you'd get value from the other work that I share here online. It's all focused on helping chefs and hospitality professionals perform better. If you don't have a lot of time, the best place to start is with the email newsletter that I write every single week called the 80-20 Edge. That's where I share knowledge on sharpening your skills, asymmetric upside, and exploring the industry beyond the status quo. And I say it saves time because I include all of the content that I published that week all in one place as kind of a weekly digest of sorts. Next up, you should check out my YouTube channel for gear reviews, clips from podcasts just like this one, and documented experiences from some of the best restaurants in the world. And lastly, if you'd like to learn about my intense cohort-based professional development focused course, get coaching from me to help you make your next move, or just support the show, you can check out justinconnor.com support. And if you do support this show already, that's greatly appreciated. Thank you. Finally, it really does help to share a review of this show on Apple Podcasts to help the podcast universe know that people like us like shows like this. And until the next episode, my name is Justin Kana, and I hope you have a good one.